We'll hear argument now on number 89-1048, the FMC Corporation versus Cynthia Holliday. Mr. Turner. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this is a statutory construction case revisiting the preemption provisions of the ERISA statute. The issue is whether they preempt the application of state anti-subrogation automobile insurance laws as applied directly to self-funded employee welfare plans. The courts of appeals have decided three cases involving this exact question. Two have found preemption as to self-funded plans, whereas one, the Third Circuit below, found no preemption. In all, the courts of appeals have addressed nine cases involving essentially this question, of which seven have found preemption, and two, including the court below, found no preemption. Now, the Section 514, the preemption provision of ERISA, contains a tripartite preemption provision. First, there is the broad preemption clause that this court has had occasion uh, to uh, construe on a number of occasions. Secondly, there is an insurance savings clause, so-called, which uh, exempts from the general preemption provision uh, the traditional state area of insurance regulation. Thirdly, there is the so-called Deamer Clause, which uh, indicates, which is at issue here, and this is the, the first time that this court has had the, the third provision, the Deamer Clause, directly before it, although you had occasion to analyze it rather thoroughly in uh, considering the savings clause in the case of Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Now, the broad preemption clause has been held to be deliberately expansive, designed to establish a pension plan regulation as exclusively a federal concern. Preempted are state laws which relate to an ERISA plan. That's the statutory term. In that they affect the administration of a plan or directly impact the provisions of a plan. Now, the courts of appeal have uniformly held that state insurance laws prohibiting the subrogation of automobile injury claims relate to ERISA insofar as they are attempted to be applied to ERISA plans, and they are thus preempted unless saved by the insurance savings clause. The the plan here, uh, the, the law here in Pennsylvania, relates to this plan because it reaches right into the plan as promulgated and removes a provision calling for the plan to have the right of subrogation when the plan beneficiary recovers against a third-party tortfeasor. Now, the Insurance Savings Clause saves from preemption state laws regulating insurance. And, in this instance, May protect. Reporting, reporting to Pardon me? Regulating, are you talking the Deamer Clause now or the Insurance Clause? No, the Insurance Clause. I'm going through first the Broad Preemption Clause, then the Insurance Clause, which may protect an anti-subrogation from preemption unless the Deamer Clause imposes its limiting uh, power upon the Insurance Savings Clause. Now, the Deamer Clause is a limitation in turn upon the insurance savings clause. In fact, in the Metropolitan Life case, this court said that the Deamer Clause modifies the 
insurance savings clause, and so it would appear from the plain language of the statute. Well, the Deamer clause uh, uses the word uh, regulate. Uh, it applies, it, it, you're not, the um, an employee benefit plan shall not be deemed to be an insurance company for purposes of any state law purporting to regulate insurance companies. Now, does that term um, need definition? Well, it goes on. It's more than just purporting to regulate. It says purporting to regulate insurance companies, insurance contracts, banks, trust companies, etc. But uh, I don't know that the the phrase needs particular definition, although you know the word purporting to is what the Third Circuit seized upon and suggested that the, in the inclusion of the word purporting in that uh, statute uh, am amounted to the word pretextually, or the state had, uh, through some backdoor or pretextual method, endeavored to uh, 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 regulate uh, uh, these these plans, but I don't believe we need to go that far. Indeed, the briefs that have been filed in this court uh, by my friends uh, here do do not uh, attempt to defend that uh, uh, interpretation uh, as it was rendered in the Third Circuit, which I must say was also the uh, interpretation that the Sixth Circuit took in the Northern Group case. They both seem to think that that word purport somehow uh, implied a pretextual approach, which uh, uh, we don't think is justified by the, uh, by the, 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 the language. The, uh, the Deamer Clause uh, does not necessarily have to attack a pretextual expansion of state regulation, but one which uh, goes beyond the regular uh, uh, historical exception of the insurance industry as we have known it in the McCarran-Ferguson Act and elsewhere. Now, in metropolitan life, this court saved a mandated benefits law as applied to an insured plan, but noted that the same law would be preempted as to a self-funded plan, and pointed out that while the court recognized that that placed some difference between self-funded plans and insured plans, that that was a difference that was inherent in the program established by Congress. Uh, and in order to, to reach that analysis, the court analyzed the whole of Section 314, the whole preemption section, so that most of the courts of appeals have followed the analysis uh, set forth in the Metropolitan Life case. And I think that would be a a careful approach uh, for the courts of appeals because, after all, while it was not the holding of metropolitan life, it was nonetheless an integral part of that court, of your court's analysis only five years ago, a unanimous uh, court. Uh, the Third Circuit, in addition to injecting a pretextual uh, concept, also injected some, another new concept that isn't uh, founded in the statute. And that was what was called the core ERISA concept that they uh, used to say that uh, uh, subrogation laws were not within the core ERISA concerns, and therefore the anti-subrogation uh, laws uh, uh, would not be 
uh, say, uh, uh, dealt with by the Deemer provision. On the other hand, the Sixth Circuit, in, in straying from the uh, implications and analysis of metropolitan life, injected a theory of balancing state versus federal interests. And that is, again, not grounded at all in the statute. Uh, the court indicated that in looking at a particular state regulation, uh, that uh, the, uh, there should be a balancing as to the, the relative significance that the state had in the matter versus the federal government. And here again, that seemed to have no basis uh, in, in the act. Your, your position, Mr. Turner, then, is that uh, all of the preemption doctrine could be pretty well uh, spelled out of the, tri the language of the tripartite preemption provision, the, the broad preemption clause, the exception for the business of insurance, and then the deemer provision that says an employee benefit plan shall not be deemed an, to be the business of insurance. Chief Justice, that's exactly our, our view. Uh, uh, and the happy, the happy import of that view is that it is a relatively uh, convenient rule of decision. Uh, it, uh, as opposed to a core ERISA concept or something else, it, it's not vague and imprecise or hard to define. Uh, there might be borderline cases that arise, but it seems to be a more helpful rule to guide the plan administrators and the lower courts. Mr. Turner, let me, may I ask you two questions? Awfully, these cases get us awfully confused, but is, is this much perfectly clear? that if your client had been an insured plan, there would be, uh, there would be no preemption because it comes within the second clause. Second. I believe that is right, Justice. If, uh, and, and if that is true, why, why, I just have trouble. What sense does it make to treat your client? Why is your client being treated differently? What, what is well, Congress trying to do here? Congress, and it took me a long while, uh, to, to come to this view, indeed, after the briefs were written. And I reread three articles that are cited in the briefs, which somehow brought the matter into focus to me. And those are the 1967 Law Review article by Mr. Dr. Goetz, a 1976 article by Brumund, and a 1973 note in the Georgetown Law Review. Those are all cited. And what those three articles did was described, each of them in their own different perspective, the historical conditions that were existing at the time Congress enacted ERISA in 74. And it was this. In the late 1960s and early 70s, these self-funded or uninsured plans were growing in both number and size. The state insurance commissioners were viewing these uh, phenomena uh, they didn't appear to be within the definitional jurisdiction of the state insurance commissioners. Uh, they were, but the commissioners nonetheless viewed them as something rather like insurance. So they were trying to decide how to expand their regulatory turf, as it were. Two proposals were made. One model legislation was proposed by the National Association of Insurance Commissioners in 1964. However, that model legislation was never adopted in any state. So failing the legislative route, the states sought judicial determinations that self-funded plans were the equivalent of insurance 
and were therefore within the purview of the existing state regulations. Uh, there was a Monsanto case in the Missouri state court system that, that illustrates this. Now, in 1974, when this uh, pulling and tugging was going on, the, the Congress enacts ERISA. And it would appear very logical if Congress had been aware of the efforts of the state insurance commissioners to expand their regulatory power to incorporate the health care, the self-funded benefit plans. And I would suggest that based on this, I, I grant you, Your Honor, extrinsic uh, uh, evidence or historical context, that the Deamer Clause was intended to resolve this question. And it was intended to resolve it in favor of the application of federal law and ERISA rather than uh, encouraging the expansion of the uh, state insurance commission's power in this manner. Congress was willing to book the uh, extent of state insurance regulation as it stood, but they, uh, in a timely manner, decided to resolve this question of what uh, law should regulate these new... By saying that these entities should not become subject to state insurance regulation because they would be considered insurance companies. And, and they it's very be... interesting. The, I think it's the brief of the state legislatures or one of the state organizations recites precisely the same history and comes to the opposite conclusion. Yes, Your Honor. I think uh, that they miss the point of the articles. They cite these articles and go through it, but I think one can come to a differing interpretation, perhaps depending on which line you're trying to establish, but uh, uh, the, it seems to me when your owner says, what was the sense of this? Is it, is it an aberrational uh, distinction or is it one that makes sense? If it's an analyzed that way, it seems, Congress made a decision and that they, and this decision furthermore is consistent with the broad preemptive sweep of 514A, the, which says this shall be basically a national these funds and pensions shall be nationally regulated so there's a uniform system. How do you deal with the, with the other argument that's kind of related to this, that the second clause, I get the names mixed up, uses the word person, doesn't use the word insurance company, whereas the Deamer Clause says you shall not be deemed to be an insurance company, but really doesn't take a, uh, a non-insured plan out of the term person in... Uh, well not leave any person for any law which regulates insurance, banking, or securities. And we have a law which I guess we all, everybody agrees does regulate insurance, bankings, and securities. And apart from the preemption provision, your client would be a person subject to that law. Yes, I don't know that the word person is where to focus, though, on 514B2A, where it says, nothing in this subchapter shall be construed to exempt or relieve any person from any law of any state which regulates insurance. I think, Your Honor, they focus more on the insurance word there, and they say that somehow when you get down into B, into the, the so-called Deamer Clause, that the words are not exactly congruent. But if you read the third clause, it seems very possible to read it as broader than the uh, insurance savings clause, as if Congress said, we're going to make this lid larger than the pot to make sure that nothing escapes uh, from the, uh, the uh, uh, insurance savings clause that shouldn't uh, go out of it. But uh, I don't think the 
in the, the lack of congruity in language uh, uh, means anything uh, of significance. The, uh, these it would, sir, if the, if the status as being subject to state regulation depended on your being an insurance company, status as that kind of person, then you don't become that kind of person just because you're an ERISA fund. No, but you are an employee benefit plan, which is the uh, type of entity that my client is and which is what is specifically so that if it's a person under A, it, it seems to me uh, that type of person is what is it's, carved out. Yeah, what is carved out, it cannot be called an insurance company by reason of the Deamer Clause. But the question I have is whether one has to be, a person has to be an insurance company to be a person who is uh, obligated to obey state laws regulating insurance banking or securities. That's, that's, the, that's the question that runs through my mind. The, as best I could tell, uh, uh, Your Honor, that a person would be incorporating any type of entity here, and uh, I don't, uh, 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 I, I, I'm sorry, I just, I'm not much help perhaps, I don't, uh, I can't take your point uh, further. Well, my point is that the, your client is a person. Whether or not is it, it is a, an insurance uh, company within the meaning of the Deamer Clause, and maybe that's enough to answer the case. Court, please, I would reserve the balance. <laughs> Counsel, may I just ask, we've received amicus briefs from people in the health care professions uh, uh, cautioning that our decision in this case might affect freedom of choice, chiropractors, etc. Uh, is, will that necessarily be the case if we follow your interpretation? Uh, in, uh, in this particular case, you, you don't, of course, need to reach that. It would, in all probability, be that sort of uh, mandated benefit law that uh, would not uh, survive as applied to self-funded plans, and that if there's to be mandated benefits or freedom of choice of providers and so on, that it would be up to Congress to supply that under the national regulatory scheme. So you're thinking that there would be preemption because it relates to insurance? Uh, I'm thinking that there, there may be, as applied to a self-funded plan uh, uh, only. You see, it would, the, the freedom of choice laws, as so-called in the states, would be saved by the insurance savings clause, but they may as applied to self-funded plans, uh, be uh, uh, preempted. So that, uh, as I say, if, the, if there is to be, if, if that arises uh, and uh, uh, people are uh, uh, disturbed about it, they should, the, the answer is to have Congress uh, mandate benefits, which in the health and welfare area, Congress chose not to do in the 1974 original ERISA enactment. Thank you, Mr. Turner. <clears throat> Mr. Shapiro? Mr. Shapiro, could I ask that you take a stab at explaining why Congress would have wanted to treat self-insured plans differently? Your Honor, Congress uh, did not give us uh, 
I should have said thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Congress did not elaborate in great detail on why, uh, in the first place, it accepted insurance regulation from the scope of preemption and then brought the plans, self-funded plans themselves, outside the scope of the saving clause, as, as we argue. But I believe that the explanation lies in a combination of two factors. One is the long-standing recognition of state interests in the areas of traditional insurance regulation, a recognition that's embodied in the McCarran-Ferguson Act and which led to the enactment of the saving clause. I think it was then realized, uh, particularly as the preemption clause was broadened out in conference, although the Deaver Clause predates that, I think it was realized that if the plans themselves uh, would be subject to regulation under this uh, recognition of traditional state power, that the purpose of preemption, both the original narrow purpose of preemption and the broader purpose of preemption as it emerged from conference would be severely, severely thwarted. So I think the, the reason for this distinction is that effort, which is bewildering admittedly at times, an effort to preserve state power, to regulate insurance companies and insurance in traditional ways, but not to regulate plans directly through that device. Uh, and that's why I think uh, the Deaver Clause is such an essential complement to the Saving Clause. The, um, uh, the time that I have available, I would like to focus uh, on an argument in that connection that is made for the first time in this court by the respondent and by her amicus, the National Conference of State Legislatures, uh, in an approach that is very different from the approach of the Court of Appeals. Um, they argue that while the saving clause is a broad reservation of state authority to regulate insurance, the Deaver Clause is, in its turn, only a very narrow exception to the saving clause. Uh, they say that the Deaver Clause relates only to those laws that regulate insurance as a business, a phrase that they do not exactly define, but which appears to cover such state laws as those affecting licensing or capital structure requirements or perhaps premium levels. Uh, the Deaver Clause, in their view, leaves very broad authority to regulate benefit plans directly as a result of the savings clause. We submit that argument fails on every ground. It fails because it's contradicted by the broad text of the Deamer Clause, and we believe it fails because it is flatly inconsistent with the purpose of the preemption provisions uh, that this court has recognized in such cases as Fort Halifax and others. Uh, looking first at the text of the Deamer Clause, uh, the respondents emphasize uh, the phrase that no plan shall be deemed to be an insurance company or to be engaged in the business of insurance. They ignore the fact that the Deaver Clause is much broader. It says no plan shall be deemed to be an insurance company or other insurer or engaged in the business of insurance. And then there follows a clause that they studiously ignore for purposes of any law of any state regulating insurance companies or insurance contracts. 
We submit that Section 1719 of the Pennsylvania law is plainly a law of a state regulating insurance contracts. Mr. Shapiro, you omitted two important words when you quoted the statutes purporting to regulate, which suggests to me that statutes which in terms define the regulated entities as insurance companies, insurance contracts, banks, and so forth. And what they're saying is if that's the manner of bringing the person under state regulation, it just doesn't apply to ERISA funds. But does that stop an ERISA fund from being a person within the meaning of the second clause? Well, there are two aspects to your question, Your Honor. I think first, the word purporting as such does not mean that the state has to expressly deem someone to be an insurance company. Purporting should be expressly or by implication. The dictionary is clear on that. We don't think purporting requires either a pretext, as the court below suggests, or uh, a specific announced purpose. We think the fact that this state law deals with insurance subrogation provisions is sufficient to satisfy the word purporting. Now, the second part of your question focuses... And the word purporting is redundant? Is totally unnecessary? We don't think it adds anything. You don't think it has any meaning? We don't think it... In fact, the word purporting is also found in the statute in the definition of a state. Uh, and the use of the word purporting there, I think, is very similar to uh, uh, the use here. That is, the definition of the word state uh, within the meaning of the preemption provision also contains the word purporting in the same uh, context that we claim it is here. With respect to the word person that you focus on in the uh, savings clause, um, we believe that the question is whether uh, the Deamer clause effectively takes this out of the savings clause because this state law, the state law that is uh, at issue here, is a law which we submit does regulate insurance contracts and in doing so deems a plan to be an insurer. Indeed, if the plan were not an insurer for purposes of this law regulating insurance contracts, the case would not fall within the savings clause at all. In other words, we believe the very factors that bring it within the savings clause also bring it within the, um, the Deamer clause because the plan uh, is effectively deemed by the state law to be an insurer for the purposes of a law regulating insurance contracts, telling insurers that they are not allowed to put a subrogation provision in their contracts. If they do, they will be void. The effect of the respondent's argument we submit uh, is to give the state very broad authority uh, to regulate plans directly uh, outside the very limited area of um, capitalization requirements and licensing. It would allow them to regulate such matters as fiduciary responsibilities. It would allow them to regulate disclosure. The very core concerns that the court below conceded was foreclosed to the states. Moreover, it would allow the state free reign uh, to prohibit provisions and plans, require provisions and plans, eliminate efforts of the plans to achieve uniform administration. Uh, in our view, the most remarkable statement in the brief of the NCFL is that the Deaver Clause is simply not directed at the relationship between the insured and his insurer. 
Now the respondent and their amici suggest that the effect of our argument is to leave a regulatory vacuum. We submit that it is not a regulatory vacuum, it is a recognition in the preemption provisions of federal responsibility. Responsibility on the courts to develop a federal common law to deal with these issues, a responsibility on Congress to engage in continuing oversight. Both branches have been meeting that responsibility. Uh, Congress has several times amended the Deemer Clause, the preemption provisions, to allow Hawaii's Health Care Act to deal with the special problems of multi-employer plans. Congress and the courts have been recognizing the responsibilities that the preemption provisions impose on them. Uh, and so, uh, for those reasons and because uh, the respondent's argument would undo the clear purpose of the preemption clause, we join the petitioner in urging reversal. Your point that the there's judgment. no regulatory gap because this court is empowered to fill the gap. Is that the argument? No, it's not this court it's as such. It's common law that fills the gap. That's part of it, Your Honor. It's a broad responsibility of all the federal courts that they have been engaged in. But it's also a responsibility of continuing oversight by Congress. And specific amendments to the preemption provisions that recognize that responsibility as well as the broad scope of the preemption clause. Thank you, Mr. Shapiro. Uh, Mr. Rothfeld, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The statute that, that Mr. Turner and Mr. Shapiro have been describing today I think very simply is not the statute that Congress wrote. They read the Deamer Clause um, as though it said, notwithstanding the Savings Clause, all state laws that regulate insurance are preempted insofar as they apply to self-insured but not to fully insured ERISA plans. And Congress could, of course, have said that if that's what Congress had meant to do. But Congress didn't say that, and it didn't say anything like that. Instead, it used different and rather curious formulation, it said that ERISA plans shall not be deemed to be insurance companies or in the insurance business for purposes of a defined set of state laws, laws re purporting to regulate insurance companies or insurance contracts. Now, or, or, or of any law of any state purporting to regulate it. That's right, Trump. Um, but it defines the types of laws that, that are preempted, those purporting to regulate insurance companies or insurance contracts. I think the answer to this case must lie in deciding what it is Congress meant by that formulation, the language that it used. The petitioner and the Solicitor General don't provide that answer. They say that the Deamer Clause was designed essentially to take away from the states, so far as self-insured plans are concerned, all of the regulatory authority that was given back to them by the Savings Clause. But that can't possibly be right, because the Savings and Deamer Clauses don't use symmetrical language. The Savings Clause saves all state laws in the language of the statute that regulate insurance. It uses general terms that regulate insurance. The Deamer Clause, in contrast, says that ERISA plans can't be deemed to be insurance companies for a narrower subset of laws, laws that purport to regulate insurance companies or insurance contracts. So there must be some laws that are saved by the Savings Clause as a general regulation of insurance that are not preempted by the Deamer Clause because they do not purport to regulate insurance companies or insurance contracts. There is no room in the scheme set out by Petitioner and the Solicitor General for those laws that are not... Excuse me, why, 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 is that, why is that broader? Um, what, 
Well, one says regulates insurance. Now, what does insurance consist of unless it consists of either insurance com- regulating insurance companies or regulating insurance contracts? I can't imagine what else. What is well, I, th- I think this case actually is, is one thing that, that falls within that gap or outside of those two terms. If, if all Congress had meant by regulates insurance companies or insurance contracts is insurance, there wouldn't have been any need to put into the Deamer Clause, which was written after the Savings Clause had been drafted. Well, I mean, terms. they may have used different language, but I, I don't see how you can possibly get any broader than, I, I don't know, I'm, what, is insu- what, what is contained within the meaning of insurance that does not consist of either insurance companies or insurance contracts? Well, I think, that, I think, Your Honor, the language of the Deamer Clause purports to regulate insurance companies or insurance contracts is directed, as I think was suggested by Justice O'Connor's question, at laws that in terms regulate insurance companies or insurance contracts. And this statute, to give one, uh, the Pennsylvania statute issue here doesn't do that. Um, it certainly regulates the right of an insurer uh, to, to be subrogated. Well, I, th- I think it is a regulation of, of causes of action or of subrogation. I mean, let me again focus on the statutory but language. Subrogation is not something that you find across the board in the law. It's typically uh, an insurance remedy when they pay off uh, someone they've insured to go after the tortfeasor. So, I mean, it isn't as if this were a generally applicable statute that applied to all sorts of situations. Subrogation is typically an insurance technique. That, that's true, Your Honor, but that doesn't make it a law that regulates insurance contracts. An insurer may have, and in fact, insurers do have, common law rights of subrogation. If, to give an example, if an insurer omitted from its insurance contract, as many do, the type of subrogation clause that FMC includes in its plan, that insurer could attempt to assert a common law right of subrogation, which is a tort right, not a contractual right, against the policyholder. Uh, and the Pennsylvania law would apply to that insurer to precisely the same extent as it applies in this case. And I think that can't be deemed a law that purports to regulate insurance, insurance contracts, although it is a law that deals with insurance. Uh, it simply provides that no one has a cause of action for subrogation in defined circumstances. It and would still, even, even as it affects the common law remedy, it would still purport to regulate insurance companies. Well, I think that the use of the term insurance laws that regulate insurance companies, Your Honor, are directed at a different type of law. I mean, as the Court of Metropolitan Life characterized laws that regulate insurance companies are typically those that set reserve and capitalization requirements that are directed at the operations of insurance companies. That's that's by no means a self-evident, or uh, that's not the only possible meaning of the word, to regulate insurance. That's a fairly narrow reading, don't you think? Well, to regulate insurance companies and insurance contracts, again, Your Honor, I think it's important to look at the entire package of preemption provisions which were written at the same time and were designed to be read together. The the preemption clause, as Mr. Turner has said, is written very broadly. It uses the language relate. It says it preempts all state laws that relate to ERISA plans. The Deamer clause, in contrast, uses much narrower language. It says laws that regulate insurance companies or insurance contracts. So it can't be that every state law that affects an insurance company or affects insurance contracts is preempted by the Deamer Clause, or there would be no explanation for the differing language used in the two provisions. Indeed, as Justice O'Connor suggested in, in her question, the Court has interpreted the term regulate in the Savings Clause, the term regulate insurance, uh, in the pilot life decision of a few years ago. And the Court there said, in accord with the common understanding of the term, to regulate insurance, it is not enough that a law happens to affect insurance generally or that even that its principal effect is on insurance, it must be specifically directed to insurance. 
I think the same, since the same word is used in the Deamer Clause, it must have the same meaning, and therefore a law that purports to regulate insurance companies or, or insurance contracts must be a law that is directed specifically at insurance companies or insurance contracts. And the anti-subrogation provision, quite clearly, as I said, is not such a law. And I think that interpretation is even stronger in the Deamer Clause, as Justice Stevens's question suggested, because it uses the language purport. And to purport to do something, I think, seems to have in common understanding that it does it in terms. And that accords, I think, with the terms used throughout the preemption provisions. So, as I said, the language of the, pre- of the Deamer Clauses and the Savings Clause simply are not symmetrical. The Deamer Clause is written after the language of the Savings Clause was in place, and therefore, I think, presumptively, Congress meant something by using different statutory language. And therefore, it cannot be, as Petitioner and the Solicitor General say, that the Deamer Clause simply takes away from the states everything that the Savings Clause gave to them. With respect to employee benefit plans. With respect to employee benefit plans. Uh, I guess that interpretation With, with respect is, to insurance, I'm sorry. Interpretation is, uh, is, is perhaps uh, assisted by that phrase in there, um, in the Deamer Clause, or to be engaged in the business of insurance or banking for purposes of any law, or to be engaged... Um, that they, they shall not only not be deemed to be an insurance company, but they shall not be engaged in the business, uh, shall not be deemed to be engaged in the business of insurance or banking. Um, what seems to be envisioned is a law that is directed against either an insurance company or that is expressly directed against an insurance company or someone who is engaged in the business of insurance. I, th- I think that that's right. I mean, there is clearly a certain opacity to the terms of, of the yeah. statute, Your Honor, but... I I think that that you are right, and I'll explain in a moment, that in fact the statute was directed at precisely those types of state regulations. The the problem I have with that, Mr. Rothfeld, is that I don't see how it makes any sense. I mean, I I, I can understand why the position uh, urged by by your opponents uh, um, makes some sense. Uh, This I I don't understand. Well, I I think precisely the reverse is is true, Your Honor. All right, tell me. in, in, in answering Justice Stevens's related question, uh, Mr. Turner suggested that Congress, Congress's purpose was to slice apart self-insurance from the insurance industry, people engaged in the business of insurance, as you've described. But he didn't answer Justice Stevens's question, why Congress would want to do that. And I can't imagine any reason why Congress would want to do that. The, the answer that is provided in the briefs of Petitioner and the Solicitor General is that it might be more expensive for self-insurers to provide self-insurance if they have to comply with state laws like the anti-subrogation provision, and that might discourage them from creating plans. And, and they similarly say that it might be an administrative inconvenience uh, if self-insurers must comply with varying state laws in different states. But to the extent those points are valid, and I should say those are the only ERISA policies that they've pointed to, they are, those points are valid to precisely the same extent of fully insured plans as to which they concede, as, as they must, that state laws are fully applicable. It will be more expensive, perhaps, for a employer to purchase insurance from an insurance company if the insurance company can't assert a subrogation right, just as it will perhaps be more expensive for a self-insurer to provide self-insurance if it can't assert a subrogation right. And insofar as administrative convenience is concerned, virtually all self-insurers, like Petitioner itself, hire insurance companies to operate their plan, so it's no more inconvenient for a self-insurer and then for a fully insured plan to comply with varying state laws. It's impossible to imagine 
why Congress, given the policies of ERISA, would have wanted to draw that kind of distinction. Now, in fact, I think it's clear from the background of the provisions, and I think the very background that Mr. Turner alluded to and some of the sources that he alluded to, what distinction Congress actually did want to draw. It was concerned, as the language of the Deamer Clause suggests, as, as your question suggested, Justice Scalia, Congress was concerned with state laws that are directed at business, people engaged in the insurance business, in particular, as, as Mr. Shapiro, I think, very nicely summarized, uh, types of laws that are applied to insurance companies, licensing laws, perhaps reserve and capitalization requirements. And the reason why Congress would be concerned with those types of statutes uh, is quite clear. It would, if, if ERISA plans had to comply with those types of business regulations, self-insurance would effectively become impossible, and all ERISA plans potentially would be subject to state licensing and notification requirements, which are, of course, precisely the requirements that are imposed by the ERISA statute and which Congress presumably did not want states to duplicate. Now, if self-insurers had to comply with those sorts of laws, they would have to obtain certificates of authority from, from state uh, insurance departments. They would have to file required disclosures with state insurance departments. They, as I said, might have to meet reserve and capitalization requirements. In, in short, a self-insurer would have to create its own captive insurance company. And some of the sources that Mr. Turner cited, such as the article by Professor Getz, allude to precisely that problem. That was a concern at the time that ERISA was drafted. Um, and it's quite clear that that's the sort of thing that Congress was concerned with. The language of the Deamer Clause is addressed specifically to that problem, insurance companies, people engaged in the insurance business. Um, and I should add that there is compelling circumstantial evidence that Congress was concerned with that problem when it wrote the Deamer Clause. Again, as Justice Stevens noted, the very evidence that, that Mr. Turner has uh, used for a different purpose. In the late 1960s and 70s, self-insurance was becoming common, um, but the only judicial authority on the question of what self-insurance amounted to were decisions holding that self-funded plans operated by insurance companies for the benefit of their own employees, while they provided insurance, were not engaged in the insurance business for purposes of statutes imposing premium and related taxes. Um, those plans, therefore, were exempted from those taxes. Now, at that time, in the early 1970s, when the original versions of ERISA were drafted and reported out of committee, they all included the Savings Clause. None of them included the Deamer Clause, which is not surprising because there would have been no reason to think the Deamer Clause was necessary to protect plans from those types of laws, given the existing authority. In 1973, while ERISA was under consideration, the first state court decision going the other way was decided. It was the Monsanto case alluded to by Mr. Turner, in which a state court in Missouri held that a self-insured plan operated by an employer, not an insurance company, was engaged in the insurance business for purposes of Missouri law, therefore had to obtain a certificate of authority from the state insurance department. The effect of that decision was to put the self-insurer out of existence. The Deamer Clause suddenly appeared in the House version of ERISA later that year without explanation. Now, the timing certainly suggests that the Deamer Clause was directed at that type of state legislation, which would put self-insurers out of existence and require all ERISA plans to comply with those types of business regulations. And there is more compelling evidence in the evolution of the statute. That's what Congress had in mind. At the time the Deamer Clause was written, the basic preemption clause was quite narrow. It addressed only fiduciary obligations, notice, and disclosure requirements. Um, the Deamer Clause couldn't have been expected to preempt more than the preemption clause, and therefore at the time it was put in the statute, its language could have been thought to preempt only those kinds of state laws. 
the state laws address that fiduciary obligations reporting disclosure. Uh, same types of general laws that are involved in state business regulation. Mr. Rothfeld, you used the term the Deamer Clause preempting. I don't understand under your analysis the Deamer Clause preempts anything. Well, I Just the, that the, the, the insurance savings clause excludes a lot of uh, regulations from preemption, but the Deamer Clause just saves a lot of self-insured entities from becoming state-regulated insurance companies. Well, I think that's which right. Is not a, that doesn't preempt anything. I'm using preemption as a shorthand. I, mean, I think it has the effect of excluding them from state regulation by, by providing that they can't be treated as regulated entities under, under state law for the defined, I emphasize, for the defined purposes of the Deamer Clause. Mr. Rothfeld, uh, do you agree with the reading, reasoning of the Court of Appeals in this case, which is, uh, certainly supports the results you want about the ERISA core concerns? Well, I don't think that we endorse all of the language of the analysis used by the Court of Appeals, but certainly we, we agree with their, their general, general conclusion and their general approach, which is that one has to examine whether or not a state law falls within the type of, of state regulation that the Deamer Clause was aimed at, that, that the Deamer Clause is not sweeping um, preemption provision that is contended for by petitioner and solicitor general. Um, so I, I, I can't endorse all of their, all of their language analysis, but I think... How, how would this statute have to read to come within the Deamer Clause? It, 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 it would have to be narrower, so it would simply have to say that uh, um, there shall be no subrogation well, I, uh, of insurers in insurance contracts? I, I think... Then, then, then it would be covered by the Deamer Clause. I think a statute providing that insurance contracts could not contain subrogation clauses um, would be, it would be a different kind of statute. Now, as I, let me, let me sort of draw. Well, what, what, what about a more general statute that doesn't just speak of whether such a provision in the contract would be valid, but it just says insurance companies shall have no right of sub- subrogation, neither, neither by contract nor at common law. No, Your Honor, I, I don't think that would fall within the terms of, of the Deamer Clause. That would not fall within the terms? Would not regulate insurance contracts? I think that if, if it is a statute, again, and I, I return to the pilot life case, which interpreted the phrase regulate, if it's not, even though it, it reaches uh, insurance companies and insurance contracts, if it reaches more, it is not a, a statute that, in terms, is directed specifically to that so it would have to regulate only insurance contracts and not any other kind of contract. I think that's right, Your Honor. Although it doesn't say that. It just says purporting to regulate. Well, it, it purports before, to regulate insurance contracts. Now, it purports to regulate things beyond insurance contracts as well. Well, I, I think, Your Honor, obviously there is a distinction between the statute you hypothesize and, and the Pennsylvania law that's at issue here. So whatever the outcome in the case you, you're mm-hmm. discussing... Um, it wouldn't control here because this is a much more general statute. Um, if it's not clear that statute would apply to this contract either, is it? I'm, I'm sorry. It's not clear that his hypothetical statute would even apply in this case. I, I think that's true, Justice Stevens. Um, but whether or not a statute that in terms regulated insurance contracts and went on to regulate in subpart B some other thing um, is a st- falls within the terms of the Deamer Clause, I think is or beside the point here, because the statute quite clearly doesn't, in terms, regulate insurance contracts at all, although it obviously has an effect on insurance contracts, that can't be enough, given the language that Congress chose for it to regulate insurance contracts. And in any event, as I was suggesting, I think that Congress had in mind particular kinds of state insurance regulation, those that are directed at sort of the business aspects of insurance, which I think is supported both by the 
the activity that led up to the creation of the Deamer Clause and is supported by the only specific piece of legislative history which addresses how it is Congress wanted the entire package of preemption provisions to operate, which is uh, explanation by Representative Dent, who was the, the floor manager and principal sponsor of ERISA in the House uh, and a member of the committee that wrote the Deamer Clause. He explained that the Deamer Clause, that, that the preemption provisions were modeled on another federal statute which preempted regulation of health maintenance organizations or HMOs. That statute was directed only at the organization and operation of HMOs, in particular preempted state capitalization and reserve requirements as applied to HMOs, but it didn't regulate the relationship between HMOs and their participants. And I think that's the line Congress intended to draw in the Deamer Clause. And as I suggested before, that's the only line Congress rationally could have been trying to draw. There is no explanation in the policies of ERISA as to why Congress possibly want, would have wanted to apply different preemption rules to self-insured than to fully insured plans. There would create, create sort of irrational distinctions from the standpoint of the plan participant, who is, after all, the intended beneficiary of ERISA. Um, it makes no, no difference whether the employer self-insures or purchases insurance. In either case, he's going to get the same benefits, and yet petitioner would distinguish on that completely fortuitous basis in deciding who gets the protections of state health law. The reading also would create irrational distinctions even within plans. Most self-insurers enter into what are called stop-loss agreements with insurance companies in which the insurance carriers agree to pay individual claims that exceed a certain amount or to pay all claims once the plan payout reaches a, a certain point. Well, you seem ready to pounce, Justice. I, I, I don't want to no, invite I, it. I didn't want to interrupt your, your point here. Um, well, I, I think, just to, to finish with, with, with that point, petitioner's reading would mean that whether or not, in particular, a plan was covered by state law would turn on whether or not the plan had reached a stop-loss point. It would mean that whether any individual claim was governed by state law would turn on whether that claim was submitted before or after the stop-loss point had been reached, since insurance carriers conceitedly are covered by this court, are covered by state law under this court's decisions. It's impossible to imagine why Congress would have wanted to draw that line. A petitioner seems to suggest in its reply brief that the answer to this problem is simply to preempt state law as it applies to insurance companies that have entered into stop-loss agreements. But that is, is completely without support in, in the statutory language. The Deamer's Clause says that ERISA plans can't be deemed to be insurance companies. It doesn't say that insurance companies must be deemed to be ERISA plans. And finally, the, the, the rule contended for by petitioner is simply inconsistent with ERISA's basic policies. The statute was enacted, its purposes are, are expressed in the statutory text to expand the protections of plan participants. But ERISA itself does not impose substantive requirements on welfare benefit plans of the sort involved here. Petitioner's reading would sweep aside all of the benefits, all the protections of state law without putting anything in its place. And again, it is very difficult to imagine why Congress would have intended that result from a statute enacted for the express purpose of protecting participants in plans. Now, the Solicitor General, to his credit, has a... Now, now let me cut in there now. All right, sure. What, what about uh, as an explanation for why, why uh, Congress wrote it this way? Simply, however irrational it might be, the, the, the sacrosanct nature of state insurance regulation. Congress might well have thought, look, the states have always dealt with regulating insurance companies. If they are somehow affecting uh, ERISA plans, through their regulation of an insurance company that sells insurance to those plans, we're not going to mess with that because basically we, federal government, has always left it to the states to, to regulate insurance companies. You know, you, you might think as a policy matter that's not a good idea, 
And maybe it's irrational, but it could have happened, couldn't it? Well, I, I suppose anything could have happened, Justice Scalia, but, but there is, A, no evidence whatsoever that Congress had that in mind. I think that is inconsistent with the, land, I mean, the, the entire distinction between self-insured and fully insured plans that's sort of been hypothesized by petitioner and the Solicitor General is not present in the, the language of the Deamer Clause itself. The Deamer Clause doesn't refer to self-insured or to fully insured plans. It refers to plans, and the term plan is defined by ERISA as any program that provides benefits to plan participants through the purchase of insurance or otherwise. So they are saying that Congress, by use of the word plan, which is defined separately to mean everything, meant to distinguish between self-insured and fully insured plans. So I, I think the entire distinction that's the foundation of their argument simply is not consistent with everything that Congress did elsewhere in ERISA. I should, I should add one thing uh, in response to, to what Mr. Shapiro said. I mean, the Solicitor General does have a solution to the, the problem of the regulatory vacuum, which, which he acknowledges is a serious concern. His solution is to have the federal courts step in and create a general federal common law of insurance. And we certainly agree that if there is to be sweeping preemption, federal courts would have no choice but to step in. But that obviously would create enormous problems of precisely the sort that petitioner is trying to avoid. It would invite confusion and uncertainty. It would make it impossible for plans and plan participants to gauge their obligations if those obligations are set in the course of litigation on a case-by-case basis according to an inchoate and evolving body of federal common law. The inevitable result would be increased litigation and inconsistency, and this court would, of course, be called upon repeatedly to straighten out this new federal common law of insurance, something that all federal courts are not well positioned to do because insurance... What you're saying that if we adopt the Solicitor General's position, we'll have to take more ERISA cases than if we don't? (laughs) Pretty... I I will... (laughs) I'll leave that to your imagination, Justice Stevens, but... In fact, they would, be, they would be worse than ERISA cases because the court would be called upon not only to interpret the statute, but to invent a new federal common law of insurance without really any clear guidance on, on what the content of that insurance law should be, at least no clear guidance provided. That might be easier than trying to figure out this statute. Mr. Rothfeld, uh, what, what about the exception in the Deamer Clause for a plan established primarily for the purpose of providing death benefits. How does, how does that exception make sense under, under your interpretation and, and under the government's uh, interpretation? Well, I'm not sure that it makes sense under... Anybody's? Well, there, as I, there's no explanation whatsoever anywhere as to what Congress could have had in mind, and it's sort of difficult to imagine. I, I think that a self-contained plan, which is directed specifically at... Uh, death benefits. It may have thought that that was less likely to be a, a large intrusion on self-insurers and less likely to drive self-insurers out of existence altogether, a problem of more general state uh, health and medical insurance regulations as applied to self-insurers. I would hypothesize that, but again, there's no clear evidence of what Congress was thinking when it wrote that. Um, I think it makes more sense. I should add one, one, one final point that if the, if, the court, if the federal courts ever were forced into the position of developing a federal common law, by far the most sensible thing for them to do would simply be to borrow state rules of decision, which is something that's done in other analogous areas. But that, of course, would make the entire strained exercise of finding preemption entirely unnecessary. But there is, fortunately, no need to do that because there is no evidence whatsoever anywhere that Congress had the intent to create the broad preemption contended for by petitioner and the solicitor general. Uh, Mr. Turner alluded to the breadth of the preemption provision, but this case conceitedly falls within the savings exception, and therefore 
all the comments about the breadth of the preemption provision simply fall out of the case. Here, the focus must be the language and purpose of the Deamer Clause. Petitioner and the Solicitor General say that that clause was designed to create a sweeping preemption in an area historically committed to the states. They say Congress did that using what is clearly language that has a certain opacity to it, that Congress did it without a word of explanation or debate anywhere in the legislative history. Now, that clearly is implausible. Their reading would create all sorts of irrational distinctions between plans, between plan participants, even within plans. It is quite clearly inconsistent with the basic purposes for which ERISA was enacted. There is no reason to imagine Congress had that in mind. And it does not even have the virtue of simplicity because it would require the federal courts generally and Justice Stevens, this court in particular, to step into the role of creating a general federal common law of insurance, which would invite litigation. There is no reason for the court to strain to find preemption in those circumstances, as it would have to do. Therefore, the judgment of the Court of Appeals should be affirmed. There are no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Rothfeld. The case is submitted.